Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Interesting story that happened this week. Three teens in Alabama were tired of playing video games, and they decided to make a YouTube video. They wanted to make a To Catch a Predator style video, so they set up a fake online dating profile saying they were minors. And all it took was two days before they made contact with a local teacher. And after they posted the video, the action was swift. For more on the story, we spoke to Anna Claire Vollers. She's a reporter for AL.com. It comes out of Calhoun County, which is a pretty rural area in the eastern part of Alabama. And these three 18-year-olds have been friends forever. They're high school seniors. Once they decided they wanted to try to catch a child predator, they started making fake online dating app accounts on Grindr and Tinder and some apps like that. And... What I kind of found the most disturbing was that it took less than a day for them to find people who were willing to talk with them, even though they said that they were underage. I think their profiles ranged from claiming they were 14 to claiming they were 17. Because you have to be 18 to sign up for a lot of these dating apps. Once they started making correspondences with people, they'd specifically say, oh, I'm 17, I'm 14. And they said it multiple times to have it on the record. So later on, if some of these people were saying, oh, I didn't know they were underage, They already had it there. They were really uh, pretty smart about the whole thing. And I've seen some of the chat logs. They would talk about, oh, well, I can't talk to you until I'm out of class or something like that. So it was very, very clear that they were in high school to these guys that they were chatting with. And once the men started sending them explicit photos, they apparently did a Google search for explicit photos of like adults and would send those to the men so that they're not in trouble for sending, um, you know, any kind of underage explicit photos. You mentioned how astonishing it was that basically on the first day they were already getting hits for connections, but their big fish came two days after they first started. And this one had happened to be a teacher. That's what intrigued them the most. They said, okay, this is a teacher. He might be endangering kids. Let's go after this guy. How did that come out? The teacher wanted to meet. And so they set up a meeting at the local Walmart because it's a public place, figuring if this guy was possibly dangerous, at least they wouldn't be in a an area that didn't have a lot of people. So they met him around midnight in the Walmart and they had one of the guys stand around in the appointed area. And then they waited for the teacher to approach him. And once he did, the other guys jump out with their camera. The minute the teacher sees the camera, starts walking away. Like it seems like he has realized that something's gone horribly wrong here. And so they follow him through the Walmart yelling at him and asking, you know, what are you here for? And this guy works for the local school board and he's here to meet underage kids. And they follow him all the way out to his car in the parking lot of Walmart. That's where the video ends. And it was less than a day that the local school board had convened an emergency meeting. The police are investigating him and eventually this man gets arrested. And that's where we are now. The quickest of turnarounds there, as you said, the next day after the video was posted, they were already on it addressing the issue. And they're getting, you know, thousands and thousands of hits on their YouTube page also. So they're happy about that. Tell us briefly about the second man that they also caught, because that happened a few hours before the specific one that we were just talking about, the teacher. They set up another meeting with another guy who had been 
corresponding with one of their 14-year-old fake accounts. So that guy, they arranged to meet him at the Walmart earlier that evening, and he met them. And he ends up talking to them, actually, for quite a while. I was sort of surprised. And honestly, it looks as though he's admitting to trying to meet a 14-year-old at the Walmart. And so that man got arrested also the same day that the teacher did. And so there are two guys behind bars because of these teenagers. So these teenagers, Dylan Busby, Cody Waller, and Jackson Lewis, they call themselves The Hive. And as we mentioned, they're just friends for many years. They've been getting a lot of positive feedback, including law enforcement, although law enforcement did say this is still a pretty stupid idea. You should, you should leave this work to law enforcement because it could be potentially dangerous. But they're also getting a lot of blowback from other people. I'm assuming comments online and things saying you ruined this guy's career. You're targeting people on Grindr and LGBTQ community because you're going on these sites. But the kids are saying, no, in the case of the teacher, he could have potentially hurt a child. So they're very happy with what they're doing. One of them has a relative who I think had been molested in the past. And another one said, you know, he's been approached by strangers online looking for sexual encounters before. So this kind of thing is personal for them. And and they said, you know, it's something that kids their age have to deal with online when they're interacting with folks online. And so I think for them, it was a way to kind of stick up for their fellow teens and look out for other kids who you know may not have that kind of protection. One of the teens, his dad is a cop. I think he said he wants to maybe be a future FBI agent. One of the other kids says that he wants to be a cop also. Do they have any more plans to make more videos? When they talked to me, you could tell they were trying to say all the right things as far as, oh, we realize this is stupid. You know, we don't encourage anybody else to do this. And I asked him, okay, but are you going to make more videos? And they were like, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> so they say, you know, after kind of all the buzz dies down a little bit, they are planning to keep this up. Anna-Claire Vollers, reporter for AL.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. One of the viral sensations that popped up last week was a little puppy named Narwhal, and he captured the hearts of many people on the internet. Narwhal is special because he was born with two tails. And while that might be strange already, that second tail was coming out of Narwhal's forehead, right between his eyes. For more on the story and the science behind this forehead tail, we spoke to Claire Maldarelli, associate editor at Popular Science. He's gotten so much popularity in the past week alone, and I think like so many people have reached out to want to adopt him. Yeah. So the reason for it, it's, it's essentially just like a congenital defect, which are just conditions that are present at birth. So the first thing that the veterinarians did was they x-rayed narwhal to see if there was any like bony attachments in there or any skeletons or anything like that and they didn't see it so essentially it's just this extra flap of skin and so the question is like where did that come from is it actually a literal second tail or is it something else and so researchers i think across the internet are kind of at odds with each other and don't really know what is actually causing this some think that it could not be a second tail because a tail would have some sort of indication of any type of bones or bone fragments right. or the beginnings of a bone, and this doesn't at all. So other researchers kind of think that it could be that narwhal was an identical twin, which is actually really, really rare in dogs because they're born in litters. But if he was an identical twin, then this is sort of the remnants, the leftover cells of his twin. Yeah, so, a, paras um, a parasitic twin is what some people have said, but you're right. A twin dog is rare as it is, so this would it be doubly rare. So uh, even 
the veterinarian that looked at Narwhal at first said that things like this can emerge from anything from genetics, which is a congenital birth defect, to environmental factors or even toxins. But researchers just don't really know. And I think the interesting thing is that if you look at it from an evolutionary biology standpoint, researchers still don't completely understand even the process that gives way to all organisms sort of going from their early, early development stage to looking like they do. Like how do humans even get to look exactly like we do? So that's kind of why they still don't know why this happened because they don't even know how it happens in the perfect case scenario. So uh, you mentioned that the little tail has no bones or anything in it. So unfortunately, it doesn't wag much to the chagrin right. of uh, many people. People would, I think I had a couple of yeah. friends who said, oh, but his tail doesn't wag. And I'm like, well, that's that's okay. It doesn't have to. But I know it's some people, order. yeah, some people were curious about that. And the doctor said it is just kind of a little flap there. It doesn't get in the way of his vision or anything. But if it was to pose some type of complication, they would have removed it. But since it doesn't, they're perfectly happy letting him keep it. It shows that being unique isn't all bad at all. And I think so many people are reaching out to want to adopt Narwhal that having a unique feature like that is always a good thing. (laughs) And where did they come across Narwhal? My understanding was that he was abandoned or something. That's what the reports that we had in our reporter, which you reported on it, that it was somehow abandoned with another puppy and this one organization called Max Mission, which is essentially a animal shelter for dogs that sort of have these, not as extreme as narwhal, obviously, but sort of like unique characteristics that make them less likely perhaps to get adopted. And so narwhal was sent to Max Mission. He's still there now, I believe. Claire Maldarelli, Associate Editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. For our final story of the week, there's a new vodka out on the market that aims to help stop climate change. It's made solely from carbon dioxide and water, and the process used results in a carbon-negative vodka. There was a chemist named Stafford Sheehan who was working on a project to make renewable fuel from air, and one of the fuels he made was ethanol. He purified it and made a few alcoholic beverages from it. But while that science creates a chemically pure vodka, some argue that it lacks soul and character. For more on this, we spoke to Adam Rogers. He's the author of Proof, The Science of Booze. It all sort of comes down to basic organic chemistry. Ethanol, which is the alcohol that we drink, if you're a drinker, that's what's in booze, right? So ethanol is a molecule, C2H6O, so two carbons, six hydrogens, one oxygen. But if you can shuffle around, if you can kind of play the shell game with other molecules like carbon dioxide and water, you can put those into a sort of a battery type thing, an electrolyzer. What these guys have invented with this specific PhD chemist has invented a metal catalyst that combines those molecules, kind of breaks them apart, shuffles them around. Out the other end comes ethanol. Now, he started working on this because this researcher, Stafford Sheehan, started working on this as a researcher to make ethanol. Same stuff as you want to like power a, a car with or right. whatever. But he would always joke around with his lab mates that, you know, it is just booze like you don't even really have to filter it it comes out even purer <laughs> than the stuff that you would make anywhere else because right. it's coming fresh off the catalyst as it were and so they were kind of kidding around and then she and met a guy who worked for diageo this big booze transnational and they were like you know you actually could drink this stuff and yeah you they sort of went on the run from there so let's talk a little bit about the science of it traditional booze versus air and how they're making it because what they do come up with is something that is carbon negative at least according to all their math The alcoholic beverages that people drink basically start with yeast. Yeast is a fungus. It eats certain kinds of sugars. When it eats those sugars, it excretes ethanol, but also carbon dioxide and a bunch of other stuff that kind of becomes flavors and smells and what we might drink. That's the way all human beings have made that for thousands of years. 
you can take that stuff and then run it through a still and it essentially concentrates the ethanol and gets rid of some of the other water. So you can go from beer that you make by fermenting grains to whiskey that you make by distilling beer, or you can ferment grape juice and get wine, and then you can distill that and get brandy. So what these guys do is get their carbon dioxide from the emissions of fermentation of places that are actually making CO2. And they say that that would just get emitted into the air. It's possible that they're actually getting it from a company that's just collecting that and would sell it to somebody else too. So you could argue that it wasn't actually going to get emitted. It was going to get used in other chemical processes. You know, CO2 is used in a bunch of different kinds of chemistry to make a lot of different stuff. But if their math is right, what they're saying is they buy CO2 that would have been emitted into the atmosphere and then contributed to global warming. But instead, they pull it in. They've got a company that has a life cycle analysis that says that they are collecting more CO2 than they use in the fuel for their trucks to move stuff around and all the machines that they use to collect and all that kind of stuff. So they're actually only emitting a certain amount of carbon dioxide. The distillery itself, because they run the electrolyzer and they're powering that with either renewable energy that they pay for. So they've got to deal with a power company that only provides renewable energy or they've got solar panels on their roof. So they're getting the electricity to run their electrolyzer from that. They get a a solution of like 20 to 25% ethanol off of the machine. Wine is usually around between 12 and 15%. Beer is somewhere between 4% and up to 10 if you're drinking really strong stuff. Distilled spirits tend to be around 40% alcohol, like 80 proof. So they take the 25% solution and then they run it through a still. Now, usually that's a really energy intensive process too, because it takes a lot of power to heat up. Stills essentially separate molecules by how volatile they are, which is how quickly they evaporate from heat because they got to go up and then over the top of kind of a long neck. But they say that they're using an electrical heater for the tank and the still, and that's powered from the same place, either the renewables or the solar. And then that comes out. So they're only using or emitting certain amounts of CO2 or CO2 equivalent. So by the time they get to the end, they say they have actually taken like a pound of CO2 out of the atmosphere that would have been emitted otherwise to make a single bottle of 80 proof vodka. You did an informal tasting in your office. What was the verdict on this? It might not surprise you if I say that as somebody who wrote a book about booze and is a journalist, that my office occasionally has cocktails (laughs) once in a while. But there actually aren't a lot of vodka drinkers in my office. So there were some responses that were like, yep, that's vodka, all right. You know, there was a little of that uh-huh. um, vibe of like, that sure is vodka. And then they would ask me where I was hiding the single malt. But to me, it is a sweeter and somewhat more viscous juice than I am used to from vodkas. And I think, first of all, we were tasting it at room temperature. And that's not how probably we would consume that. I like super ice cold vodka if I'm going to drink it. But we were trying to see what the flavors were. And actually, if you have something that's cold, it's less volatile. So a lot of the aromatics don't bounce up as high. It kind of doesn't smell and taste the way it would at room temperature. What Sheehan, who's the researcher, the scientist who makes the stuff said, is that in the process, they're actually, instead of breaking a six carbon sugar, which is what you're doing when you're asking yeast to make you ethanol the old fashioned way, they might actually be making some fewer compounds than you would get out of that yeast powered fermentation, but other kinds of compounds too. And he's not totally sure yet, although they do a lot of gas chromatography and mass spectroscopy on what they're making at their distillery. There are a lot of things that scientists, no matter how good their analysis are, really don't know what the molecules are, even in something like vodka, which technically is only supposed to be ethanol and water, although yeah. often there are things at trace amounts that are contributing things to flavor. So I I thought it was on the sweet side of the palate rather than a kind of a savory or like clean. I'm putting that in quotes with my fingers. And this seems a little bit weird, so forgive me. I sometimes think that there's a flavor axis that goes kind of between what like rubbing alcohol smells like and what nail polish remover smells like. And I don't say that to insult the stuff. So to me, this was more on the isopropyl on the rubbing alcohol side than the acetone than the nail polish remover side. 
you are a connoisseur of these things. Let's say you wrote the book on the science of booze, just kind of going off of what maybe some of your colleagues said, hey, that tastes like vodka. I mean, for this whole scientific process to make this new vodka, that's kind of a win right there. If it tastes like a lot of other vodkas, they might be more willing to drink it. And if it tastes kind of like other vodkas, when you're making a cocktail, even a high-end cocktail, some of that stuff gets masked in there. So that's kind of a win in and of itself right there. I would say two things about that. The first thing I'll say is there's a lot more experimentation that you can do. Like you can imagine this still being carbon negative with like adding some flavors in the still, which is how you make a gin or like trying some aging experiments, which Sheen said he wanted to try. So you get ex bourbon casks and age the stuff in there and see what kind of flavors you pull out of the wood, but still using the same liquid. That's an interesting idea too. And there are actually some distilled sake, which is like shochu basically. So distilled rice wine, shochu. And there are a couple of companies who are putting that into whiskey barrels and getting a very whiskey-like, really interesting drink. I really, I think it's delicious. So there's some experimentation to be done in terms of the flavor. But I would say broadly, the really interesting thing here to me are the potential implications for all of the chemical processes that human beings use to make the kind of furniture of the everyday world. There's a lot of chemistry that goes on in the world that uses a lot of power. It's not the main source of greenhouse gas emissions, but it would be great if chemists and physicists and engineers started to think of ways to do some of the things that human beings expect them to do, and in fact will pay for, in a carbon neutral or carbon negative way. Instead of just trying to buy offsets or say, well, we're going to do the thing, but also plant trees, or we're going to do the thing, but contribute to some nonprofit that's doing regenerative agriculture or whatever, like all those things are really important and good, and we should do those things. But the idea of actually rebuilding the fundamental processes that human beings want to use to make a modern world, but to do it in a carbon negative way with the kinds of innovations that Sheehan is working on, that's really exciting to me. In this current situation that we're in where we're getting things like craft cocktails, craft drinks, craft beers, all this stuff, would a process like this really be successful when people, at least on the face of it, are trying to return to more natural ingredients, things like that? That's the really interesting question, isn't it? Because you have to figure out how much of this tale you can tell to somebody sitting at a high-end cocktail bar or in an expensive liquor store and hope that the narrative is compelling enough to make them buy it or try it. Because what the craft distilling world right now especially relies on, although the big Diageo or Wild Turkey, whatever, will do this too, is build narratives that tend to be about authenticity and provenance. And we know the farms that are growing the corn that we're putting into the bourbon. I'm in the Bay Area, which is a hub of craft brewing and craft distilling. My favorite craft distillery in Alameda, in the story, I talked to Lance Winters, who's the distiller there at St. George. And I think they make really great stuff. But his whole point is the authenticity of the fruit, you know, selecting the pears at harvest so that he can make that into a brilliant pear de vie. He said that this air vodka almost seems soulless in a way because it lacks all of that other stuff. To him, because it is made literally from thin air, at worst, it's a marketing trick to him. And at best, he's saying it's soulless. It doesn't have the terroir, the provenance, the authenticity, the narrative, you know, something that grows from the ground that an artist can make into something new. And I I see what he means. And Lance is a real smart guy and he knows his science. He knows exactly what this is. But I do think that, well, first of all, this sort of experimentation is what keeps a field alive. And those kind of disagreements are disagreements among sophisticated people who are trying to make something that people want to drink. But they're also, as I say, like the idea that a chemical process like this can make ethanol for booze bodes really well for the idea that it can make other chemicals in a carbon negative way that people might want to use instead of the really unthinking and dangerous way that human beings have been living on the planet for the last few decades. Adam Rogers, senior correspondent at Wired and author of Proof, the Science of Booze. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Always happy to talk about it. That's it for this weekend. 
be sure to check out the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow the Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of the Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.